If you haven't already done so, I encourage you to have your Bibles open to 2 Samuel to chapter 5. If you weren't here last week, or perhaps just by way of reminder, last week in chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, we worked through the life of David. We came to the momentous time of him capturing Jerusalem. And that raises a question. If he's going to make that his capital, where is he going to live in Jerusalem? If you were moving to a new city, one of the major items you have to deal with, of course, is where are you going to live? What's going to be your house? But now imagine you are a king. Not just any house is going to do for a king. The house that a king has has to suit his needs, but it also is a statement to the world about his kingdom. And then there's just the the practicalities of it. And the text immediately beneath our text tonight, you'll see that David has a large household. He has a lot of people who are going to be living with him. From what we know from archaeology, contemporary homes of rulers in that region of the world, that time, a typical home of a king was about 10,000 square feet. It's a big deal. Where is he going to live? And our text provides the answer. It tells us where he gets his home from, beginning at verse 11. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for having preserved it even to this very evening, for having preserved us to hear it. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts to give attention, to delight in seeing your hand of providence at work throughout the ages, to be comforted to know that you continue to stand over all things as you give the kingdom to your Son, and that you grant us to receive it in him. We ask in everything that you would be honored and that we'd be preserved from error and led into truth. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The person named in this passage, Hiram, king of Tyre, seems to just jut into the narrative. It assumes that people know who he is. And certainly in the ancient world, they did, because he is no mean figure. He is a significant figure at that time of history. He is the king of Tyre, which is a Phoenician region that is just north of Israel's boundary. And he is ruling over an area that is modern-day Lebanon. To this day, they are known for their cedars, but especially then. They were known for their great cedars, and they were known as a seafaring people, a people who lived mostly by trade, not by warfare. They are, as well, one of the oldest continuously occupied cities in the world. Most estimates say that the city was occupied from at least 1500 B.C., And so this was a well-known kingdom, a very wealthy kingdom, and it's out of that wealth that this king sends a gift to David. The way it's described in verse 11 puts it very, very modestly. It says, cedar trees, carpenters, and masons who built David a house. But there is nothing simple and there is nothing cheap about what is actually involved in providing a home worthy of a king on that kind of scale. 
Think again, a 10,000 square foot home today is a big home. But this is in the ancient world. Everything is done by hand. This is before of all the modern mechanisms that we have. This is before all of the electric tools that we might use. In fact, perhaps to help maybe some of the younger people grasp some of this, I'm going to leave a book in the pulpit this evening if you want to come and see this. Uh, it is a book that shows in vivid detail photographs of people taking huge trees, felling them using only hand tools, and then using only hand tools to hew them into huge beams and boards and then construct a building. And you get a sense, we're talking hundreds or thousands of workers involved in this. And they are cutting down large trees and floating them down the sea along the coast to bring them to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem isn't on the coast. It's inland. This is a wildly extravagant gift. In our modern money, it's not less than hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a phenomenal gift. And it raises the question, why is Hiram sending this? Why is this king of a Gentile region sending this kind of blessing to build a house for David? And why is David, as a Jew, willing to receive a house made by Gentiles? We're going to see that in many ways this opens prophetically. It opens a veil to understand God's purpose in Christ. And that in turn informs how we seek to glorify Christ and so we'll consider these things under two main headings. I'll announce each of them as we come to them. But first, again, I want to ask you, why did Hiram desire to give this extravagant gift? I don't want to rush to cynicism, and I don't think that you should either. We should not rush to the assumption that this is purely that he sees financial gain by having a good relationship with Israel. We should not assume that God did not work in his heart, perhaps he was among those whom the Lord was giving a taste of the goodness of God towards Israel too. In the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord promised his people that when they walked well before him, the Lord would draw the nations toward God. And in 2 Chronicles 2.11, it says, Hiram the king of Tyre answered in a letter that he sent to Solomon, David's son, because Yahweh loves his people, he has made you king over them. That may be just words, but it may also be sincere that he recognizes something of God's favor upon the kingdom and he's feeling drawn to it. Maybe David would have told him what had been promised to all of Abraham's descendants, those who bless you, I will bless. But on the other hand, there's no question that there is a financial side to this. There's every reason for that kingdom to want to have a good relationship with David. And so it makes sense. Think for a moment, at that time in history, very few people ventured on a boat further away than they could see the shore. It's only in really what we consider the modern era, really after 1300, that you get a lot of travel where people go right out into the ocean. Most vessels hug the shore. And so if Tyre wants to trade with Egypt and not be impaired, by Israel's boats, they will need to have a relationship, an alliance, where they can go down. Also, they want access to Edom, and they want access to the area that we now call Saudi Arabia. And so it makes sense that they want to have this access. 
One scholar, Richard Miles, points out that there is evidence of a Tyrian Israelite expedition that traveled to the Sudan and Somalia and perhaps even as far as the Indian Ocean. So this is a significant alliance, and it makes sense that the king wants to establish good relations and give this good gift to David. That's from Hiram's perspective. But as our first heading, I want to point out a different perspective. The purpose of this gift from the perspective of King David. Because that's going to shed light on who God is towards his covenant people. Look at me at verse 10. And David became greater and greater. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Let me make an aside here. When you read Lord in your Bible, and it's in all capital letters, it is a sermon every time. It doesn't simply mean an authority. Our English Bible has come to put that as Lord in that way for reasons I'll spare you here. But in Hebrew, this is the covenant name of God, I am. Every time that is upon the lips of God's covenant people, they are to remember that the Lord is self-sufficient and therefore he can provide everything that we need. He is faithful. Every time you see that name, we are to remember who God is for us. The Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And then verse 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom. Hiram gave the gift, but David sees right through the gift to understand there's something deeper going on. God in his providence has put it upon the king of Tyre to have this kind of relationship. It's very important for us to recognize that while there is such a thing as responsible human volition. People make choices. They are real choices. Yet, in order for people to have responsible will, God doesn't have to give up a piece of his freedom pie. He is sovereign. And for people to make responsible choices, he doesn't have to give something up. His sovereignty, his power over all things, is higher than that. It operates on a level beyond the way that we think of our wills and operations in the world. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Proverbs 21, 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And yet, in the Bible, God holds kings accountable for their bad choices. He can turn them, but he's not unjust for holding them accountable for doing what they want. And you might say to yourself, well, how do we reconcile this? There is a mystery here. Proverbs 25, verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal things. If you were an ant crawling across someone's shoe, you would not understand everything about that person. You wouldn't grasp the scope of their strength, let alone would you be able to penetrate into their heart and know their mind. And in this analogy, we are smaller than an ant relative to the sovereignty of God. But the scripture is full of the demonstration that it is God who works not just in the tiny affairs of our everyday life, but he works on the level of nations and kings. Ezra chapter 6, verses 22, and then chapter 7, verse 27 says, In another time, the Lord turned the heart of the king of Assyria to show favor to God's people, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God. So this is not the only time in the Bible where God turns a king 
to show favor towards the house. And then it says, Blessed be the Lord who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. The Bible doesn't tell us how exactly, though it's worth ruminating upon how he does that. And he uses all kinds of secondary means. It's not, we should not simplistically assume that every time we read something like this, God is whispering in someone's ear. They go, oh, that's a great idea. He uses secondary means, the people around them, the circumstances of life. He controls all those variables, millions of variables. But at the end of the day, David has reverence and acknowledges this comes from the Lord. In all things, we should be prepared to acknowledge God, good and evil alike, good and evil. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 through 28, Peter is addressing a crowd of Jews after Jesus had been crucified and then raised. And he says, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, you have these leaders, but it was God's predestinating plan that is unfolding. Why do you need to hear that? We need to be brought back constantly that God is sovereign over all, that we don't buckle in fear, especially those who rule, whether in this country or any country. And that we have hope. God turns the hearts of kings and rulers. We pray for that. We shouldn't neglect that. You have not because you ask not. And all of God's people regularly, there should never be a week that passes that we don't pray for those in power. Even if we don't pray for every single one by name, at least as a generality, we pray for our leaders our children should hear us pray likewise, knowing that God can move even in this kind of extravagant way. Now, we still haven't identified, though, what is the purpose of God in moving the king in this way? On the one hand, we might say that God wants to honor David. David is honoring God, and God would be kind to honor him. Proverbs 16, verse 7 says, When a man's ways please Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And that is a great comfort. Ordinarily speaking, when you walk in the way that God has called you to, you don't have a bunch of enemies in the world. God turns people to see, maybe even they would be against you, but they see, you know what, I can work with this person, even if it's not from the right motives. God turns them. But David here identifies a more fundamental reason, a more basic reason for God's gift in this case. Look with me at verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Thank God it doesn't go to David's head. He doesn't say, it is because of me and this kingdom I built. But he sees that God is faithful to his covenant. And we are not in some other time where God is now not faithful to his covenant people. We don't always understand why he is doing what he does, but he is faithful to his people. And here at this point in their history, he sees that it would be good for them to have these blessings. With this honoring of David, Israel's prestige on the world scene would be greatly magnified. It sets the stage for Solomon. When you have one of the major players in the ancient world acknowledging you shortly after you've won the Civil War and maybe people want to fight against you, now your kingdom seems 
the other nations acknowledge me. And this is a benefit to the people because now they're going to reap many years of relative peace from outsiders. They'll have internal strife, unfortunately. Civil wars will come again in David's lifetime. But outwardly, they are largely spared from this time for more than a generation. God is being faithful to his people. Deuteronomy 28 verse 1 says that when the people honored the Lord, God would cause them to ride high upon the nations, that he would lift them up in the world scene. And so this gives us some sense of what God is doing here. He's blessing his covenant people. He's blessing David, but it's ultimately as a kindness to his people and faithfulness to his word. But that's not the only reason, nor is it the most far-reaching reason. As a second division in our study of this text, we need to consider an even longer-term reason why God was doing this. Now, we've been seeing, I trust, as we work through this narrative, that even though this is not a book of prophecy, this is a historical book, but it is in the historical books that we see so many of what we call types and shadows. When I sit down sometimes with unbelievers and they ask me why I believe the Bible, Part of me wants to say to them, well, are you aware of just the astronomical impossibility of the prophecies of the Bible being fulfilled? And yet they are. But they probably often think I'm talking about more like what we saw this morning, that hundreds, 600 years before John the Baptist came, the Bible said a man would come who looked and sounded like Elijah. You know, this kind of this is the really clear thing it's going to be, and this is what it's going to look like. But typology is prophetic as well, and it's harder to just sit down and in one moment explain all of that. But it's unlike every other religion in the world. It's unique. It's unique to our Bible. How Old Testament historical events at every level are building out a preview, a picture of the new covenant reality. And when you understand that, things like we saw last week, the significance of Zion, why does David want Zion? And you learn about the river, and then you see in Revelation 21, the river in the New Jerusalem. When you see all of these intricate, uh, intricate interwoven images that have a fullness under the new covenant, for believers, we look at that, and in the words of our Belgic Confession, we, we say, you would have to be blind to not see God's hand in it. One of the reasons why it's good for churches to spend time looking at these types, it's not as simple as, you know, just being reminded of here's the picture of justification, which is important, but it's more than that. It's laying a foundation for especially the young to see the integrated way that the whole Bible has been formed by the Holy Spirit. And this evening, there's a similar thing as we're in this passage, David's a central figure in the Bible, we're in this passage that is clearly dense with meaning as we work through this, as he comes into the kingdom, because that's what it's all pointing to, the kingdom of Christ. It's natural then that this gift plays some role. As the second heading here, in light of the new covenant, this is giving you a sense of God's purpose to provide a house for his king. It's giving a sense of God's purpose to provide a house for his king, and his king is ultimately Jesus Christ. That's who David is a type of. David's life is formed to represent. And when God builds a house for Jesus Christ, he's going to draw the resources of his house, the laborers and the materials, from the Gentiles. 
He's going to build his house out of the Gentiles. I want to be clear. On the one hand, historically, he has literally used the materials of Gentiles to accomplish that. The church has been blessed. The kingdom has been blessed in innumerable ways as God has moved upon kings for a whole variety of reasons, moved upon rulers to show favor towards the church. Think of so many cathedrals. Think of so many schools. Think of so much that has been done in the name of Christ. But I'm getting at something different, at the spiritual aspect. Hear what it says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul prays, and he's speaking to Gentiles here. He prays that Christ may make his home in your hearts through faith. That Christ may make his home in your hearts through faith. Colossians 1 verse 27, again, addressing Gentile believers. God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's secret purpose, which was not hidden, but it was, it was concealed, but it wasn't unknown under the Old Testament, was that in time he was going to draw to himself people from all nations, and to make of them his dwelling place forever. Christ is God incarnate. He, at the end of the day, does not need a home made out of wood and stone. That's not what he wants. He wants to dwell in the habitation that from creation he intended for his glory, which is the human heart and will. He desires to be all in all to sit upon a throne in each individual, and together, all of us, we are the building. This was shadowed in the Old Testament. It comes to greater fullness in the New, but I want you to see one of the many places in the Old Testament where this is revealed. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, verses 10 through 14. Like many prophecies, it has multiple historical reference. That is, it will have a fulfillment on one level, close to the time when the prophecy came with the literal building of the second temple. But then it's going to have the bigger fulfillment in the new covenant, the spiritual fulfillment in the calling of the Gentiles. Maybe you're familiar with this passage, maybe not. But as you hear it, understand that when you... Hear it, there are all of these echoes that occur in the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation. This is 700 years before Jesus is born that the uh, prophet Isaiah prophesies, foreigners shall build up your walls, speaking of Jerusalem, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that the people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. It had a partial fulfillment in the period leading up to Jesus' coming. The second temple really was built by Gentile wealth. An incredible thought. But then it was never completely fulfilled on earth in that way because the, the doors never being closed, the gates never being shut, that would imply such security that there's no fear ever. 
they continued to shut the gates in Jerusalem forever. It's in Revelation 21 that you see the new Jerusalem. And it says that its gates are open at all times. And the whole purpose is to give you the sense that at all times, God's people, drawn from every tribe, tongue, and nation, have access to God's presence forever. And then it says in verse 12, For the nation and the kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. That's Tyre. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain, and the pine to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. And so you imagine those cedars being cut down again and sent in. But I encourage you, look beyond that. Ultimately, what that prophecy is looking to is something far better than a tree. It's looking to human beings. Mark chapter 3, verse 8, and Luke chapter 6, verse 17, both tell us that one of the things Jesus did early on in his brief earthly ministry was beeline for the coastlands. He goes to Tyre. He doesn't just stay in Canaan. He goes to the coastlands of Tyre and Sidon, and he preaches the gospel. And you may remember he rebukes Israel. He says, woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. You did not respond half so well as the people who were over in Tyre. Christ goes to Tyre because there are elect people in Tyre. And he preaches the gospel. God in his providence is the one who ensures that Christ has a people in every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. And God the Father is going to give his son a house. And for thousands of years now, we are still, the house isn't done. You have to see it like every time a person's coming to faith, there goes another tree. And it's being floated down the water and it's being sent to Zion. It's going to end up a place where Christ dwells. God is taking the riches of this world and the riches that will last aren't the silver and the gold. It's the people. The people are the riches of the world. That's what the Lord Jesus wants. Verse 13 again, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary and I will make the place of my feet glorious. You're a rough-looking tree, aren't you? You got boughs sticking out. You got big bark all over you. But the Lord provides the laborers. He hews his people in this life. There's a beginning of that here. And in glory, he'll set you in place, and it will fit like the tightest joint that ever was. You will be smooth. You will be glossy. You will be exactly what the Lord intended you to be in his household. His home will be glorious. And that's because he has not finished with your heart. He's not done sanding and planing and lopping and cutting. But he has purposed it. Verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. And all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And the Lord has been doing that through the ages. And he's done that even with rulers in this world. Even in Paul's own lifetime, it says in Philippians 4 verse 22, all the saints send you greetings, especially those from the household of Caesar. Already by 60 AD, you have people in Caesar's household who are acknowledging and worshiping Jesus. 
by the third century, you have the king of Armenia, who is the first ruler that we know of who converts and says he's a Christian. By the 300s and 400s, you have a significant number of leaders at every level throughout the Roman Empire. And this has spread through the world. Now, not everyone everywhere is sincere. That's not the point. And everyone didn't provide the house to David, the king of Tyre did. But God does draw a portion, and historically, we can't miss this. Just because we live in a largely, quote, post-Christian culture, you can't evade the fact that for 2,000 years, Christianity, the, the long stride of Jesus Christ, has been walking across history, and not just in Europe. Study the history of Korea. Study the history of North Africa. Study the history of South America now. In many places, all throughout all the world, Christ draws not just the low, though predominantly the low, but also leaders. Why does he do that? It's not because they're more valuable. Verse 12 of our text, but for the sake of his people. God doesn't have to use rulers of this world, but he chooses to. And he chooses to hide the hand of his providence in the goodwill that they show. What then do we do with this? I want to exhort you in three ways. I want to exhort you first, believe on Christ to finish, or to, on the Father to finish providing Christ with a house. Maybe you simply need to have that renewed as you look at the world and you say, oh, they're all against Christ. His house will be better than everyone's house. And it's going to last. Faith in him is so worth it. Every other house will be cast down. Believe upon him to provide that. Even if kings were to circle the church, we don't buckle. Second, I want to encourage you, pray. Pray for God to glorify Christ by moving outsiders to worship him. Especially in this case, in the context of the sermon, those who are in high positions of authority. Again, they are not more worthy, but this is part of God's plan. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Notice there as well, thanksgivings made for all. Thanking God for the way that he uses those who are even outside, who are not believers. For kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He has elected, apparently, a majority of the low. 1 Corinthians 1 says that. But he desires all kinds of people to be saved. And forbid that we should ever pray against someone whom he has chosen to use as his tool. Someone perhaps he's chosen to save. Pray for them not simply for their salvation, but for the good of the church. We have been spared for decades now of worldwide war. And leaders in God's providence make choices. And I would not hesitate to say that that is in part a response of God to the prayers of his people since the last one. We pray for God, and why? It's not just the calamity and the death, it's that when those things happen, when societies break down, when there's warfare, when there's all kinds of corruption, the mission of the church is greatly impeded. 
God can override, but he overrides through means. And he means for us to pray. Last, I want to encourage you to offer yourself richly this day, this week, as the dwelling of the Lord. You are where, at the end of the day, Christ has chosen to dwell. If a king who's perhaps not a believer saw that David was worthy of tremendous honor, how much more should we desire to honor Christ? And we do that as we recognize that if he's going to dwell in me, I want my inward being, my mind, my thoughts, my appetites to be a pleasing place for him to dwell by his Holy Spirit. He is worthy. And that means, you know, in that household, as you see, that beam is a bad one. That one's broken. Get it out of there. That's a lifelong work of preparing a home for the Lord. It's begun in this life. It's not completed here. But he is worthy. Let's ask for him to help us even now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for having given to us such blessings. We thank you that Throughout history, you have moved those in high positions of authority to show far more favor to your church than we would anticipate. We thank you for having set Satan on a leash, that he is limited in all that he can accomplish, that you overrule his desire to turn all nations against your people. We pray this evening that you would please bless the world through the blessing of your people. We ask for our country in particular, God, that you would turn the hearts of those in high office, that they would not spurn the Christian faith, but that the laws as they are would in every way not hinder, but even promote our work as your servants. We pray, Father, that you would please relieve those who are persecuted this very day throughout the world, that you would raise up others who honor you and honor your dwelling. We thank you for having given us the privilege of being the dwelling place of God for eternity. We ask that you would open our minds a little bit more in the coming week to understand and appreciate that and to rejoice for what you've given to us in Jesus. We thank you that you do these things for the sake of your people. We are not worthy, but you are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.